This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode seven, Kyle and I are talking about State of New York versus Carolyn Warmus. On January 15, 1989, Betty Jean Solomon was found by her husband, Paul Solomon, in their, con- in their condo in Greenberg, Westchester County, New York. The investigation initially focused on Solomon, who'd engaged in an extramarital affair with a younger woman, Carolyn Warmus. During the summer of 1989, investigation of Warmus's phone records led detectives to a PI named Vinnie Parco. Parco eventually admitted to illegally selling Warmus a gun and silencer in the weeks before Betty Jean's murder. Warmus's indictment and arrest in February 1990 led to the murder being dubbed the fatal attraction murder by the media. After two trials, Warmus was convicted of second-degree murder and second-degree criminal possession of a weapon and sentenced to 25 to life on the murder charge and 5 to 15 on the weapons charge. We'll talk about the evidence against Warmus, her troubled relationship history, her trials, conviction, appeals, and her continued claims of wrongful conviction. And good evening, Kyle. How are you on this Monday? I am great, Lisa. How are you? Uh, so glad to join you again. This is a fascinating case. <laughs> it is. Uh, and I remember this one because I am the same age as Warmus. Yeah. And I was, I was looking, not only, you know, do people say it was inspired by the movie Fatal Attraction, I think it, uh, it spawned maybe a couple of television movies, which I'm sure I probably, probably saw <laughs> as well back in the day. Yes, I saw them as well. Um, I didn't watch them again, though, so I at least had some willpower. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, this is an interesting case, and uh, uh, Carolyn Warmus is definitely an interesting woman, and she comes from a somewhat interesting family. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Of course, this is 1989, more or less pre-internet, so it, there's not a lot of information out there about Betty Jean Tory Solomon, who is the victim in this case. Uh, we know she was born in New York in May on May 6, 1948. She has a sister, Joyce Green. She may have other siblings who just haven't, you know, made themselves publicly known. Um, she was a manager and worked in banking and finance. She married Paul Solomon in 1970. Their only child was a daughter, Kristen, born in 1973. And an interesting fact, prior to dating Solomon in 1967, Betty Jean was engaged to a man who was killed in a car accident. 
Yeah, I was going to bring that up. She sort of had a an initial tragedy in her life that really kind of led her to uh, led her to Paul. I believe mm-hmm. they might have even been what high school sweethearts, kind of the love of her life. And yes, I think they were either college sweethearts or, or perhaps high school sweethearts. Uh, she did attend some college, but she ended up dropping out. And I did read somewhere. I think one of her friends may have told someone that maybe thought Paul, even though they ultimately got married, might've in some ways almost been like a rebound that maybe she, you know, maybe she wasn't nearly as crazy about Paul as she was. I believe Earl was the name of her, um, of her first, you know, the boy, the man that was killed. Yeah. You know, at least it was one of her friend's opinions that maybe, you know, I think I heard, you know, she never really liked Paul, Um, which seems odd that they got married, but yeah, I well, I think 1970, she probably had people saying, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? So she did. Because um, she would have been about 22. Right. And um, yeah, I, I she did have a somewhat troubling relationship with Paul because they apparently um, while they stayed married more likely than not because of their daughter um they both really engaged in affairs outside the marriage right yeah it did not seem like a healthy relationship yeah um but they were they were financially and 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 bound together by the child so um but yeah that was that was uh an interesting but like i said we don't know too much about her because it's pre-internet so and it's a shame, too, because with a lot of these cases, the real victims are often kind of forgotten with so mm-hmm. much ink spilled over yeah. the, um, you know, the perpetrator. Not a lot is known about their victim. And and some awful person has posted on Find a Grave page for Betty Jean has posted a picture of Caroline Warmus, Carolyn Warmus, which That's is the awful. lowest of the low thing that I can That's think horrible. of. That's horrible. Yeah. So, um, and then we move on to our perpetrator tonight is Carolyn Warmus. She was born January 8th, 1964 in uh, the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Her father started an insurance company called American Services Way Corporation. Uh, And guess what? Guess what they sold? Insurance. Car warranties. Oh, car warranties. That was prior. I bet. That's right. Prior to the phone calls, (laughs) prior to robocalls. (laughs) Um, But uh, her father was Thomas Warmus. Her mother was Elizabeth Warmus. Her parents divorced in 1970. She had two siblings, a sister, Tracy, and a brother, Thomas. Carolyn is the oldest child of, of the three. Um, now, interestingly, a lot of Carolyn, a lot of Carolyn's childhood friends said that there really was not much of a relationship between the kids and the parents. Yeah, and I remember I, reading that. I suspect that a lot of Carolyn's issues with men come from the distant relationship with her father. Right. And didn't he run off with his secretary at the time? Well, as I understand it, from what I found, the the there was like a 
an unhappy marriage anyway between Thomas and Elizabeth. And they divorced in 1970. Now, Thomas did remarry Nancy Daly. Uh, but I don't know what her connection was. Um, and I don't know whether it was immediately or, or years after the divorce happened. Yeah, it seemed like I had remember reading that, that that maybe she worked for him. And then I think I thought the same thing, that a lot of her sort of emotional issues probably stem from this period of her life. I think also maybe kind of a, a rivalry with her sister, Tracy, as well as, you know, her just the general distance from her parents and, and all of that kind of family dysfunction. Yeah. And there was a lot of dysfunction because apparently the, the parents, like the, the, the kids would go live with mom. And then mom would send him to go live with dad. And then mom would want him back. And then they'd go back to live with dad. So there was a lot of her friends and a lot of people in her, in her childhood said there wasn't any stability in her life. There was a lot of money and they had a lot of things, but there was no stability. Right. Yeah. That classic, you know, story of, you know, buying affection and replacing, you know, real love with materialism, thinking you can sort of buy your way, mm -hmm. buy your way to your kid's happiness. Yeah. I think I heard he too. Yeah. He, that the father kind of, I think, lavishly spent on, you know, his new wife, maybe even, because I think if I recall, right, he may have, you know, gotten a lot more financial success after the, um, after his divorce, uh, well, I think the, the business kind of ex the business may have exponentially grown after the divorce, but based on Thomas's later history, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him to have hidden as many assets as he could <laughs> until after the divorce was final. Right. That makes sense. Because we'll talk about that a little later. He's that kind of man. Yeah, not a good guy. <laughs> so um, Carolyn went to uh, college. I'm not quite sure where she went to college. Maybe Michigan. I don't remember what the undergraduate I think school that's was. Right. Uh, but she ended up going to Columbia University in New York for her master's. And then fell in love with and, and decided to live and settle in New York City. That was her first mistake. Um, she, after she got her master's, she began substitute teaching in West County, Westchester County, New York. Uh, and she also, during off times in the summer, would work office clerical jobs to make ends meet. And that's pretty common with a lot of teachers. Um, because in those days you couldn't get paid out all 12 months of the year. You were paid for the time you were in school. Just got it. And then you, you either, you know, like my grandmother used to do, she used to do tutoring to get through from June to school starting again in September. Um, well, and especially being in New York, not the cheapest place, <laughs> not yeah. the cheapest place to live, especially for a, for well, a teacher. Apparently, uh, they were, they had money from their father, right? She was, she was not struggling to make ends meet. She was not robbing Peter to pay Paul. 
she had charge cards and bank accounts and, and, you know, access to funds in addition to what she earned. Right. Yeah. And I seem to recall, I think it's probably another learned behavior from her father. I seem to remember some of her friends from, you know, high school or maybe college talking about how even then she would kind of try to use her, use her dad's money to manipulate people. You know, if there was something she wanted, she would, you know, tap into his resources to try to get what she wanted, whether it was getting a friend to set her up with somebody or, you know, things like that. Correct. And that was, that, that was another thing. And she did, she always had um, people, some of her childhood friends, some of her college friends, some of her young adult friends even described her as off. Um, she was, she was Jody Arias 1.0. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Um, she would, would become totally, she would start seeing somebody and become totally obsessed with him. And she would act on that obsession. She would hire private detectives. She would come up with schemes to, uh, like it, she was dating a married bartender in New Jersey. She hired a private detective. She was going to have the private detective take pictures of her naked, superimpose them with the right. uh, married boyfriend, and then send them to the wife to end the marriage. Um, kind of, yeah, and kind of like harebrained, stupid schemes. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like and, trying to be manipulative, but not quite smart enough to be really good at it. Correct. And, and really are thinking that she's really good at it when she's not. <laughs> right. Um, and you saw, you know, some of the, one, another aspect of her personality is borderline personality. She's got borderline personality. And um, you remember when they talked about the suicide letter found in the search of her apartment in New York and they're showing it to her and asking her about it? Did you see how the attitude she copped? Yeah. Very strange. I mean, it was like yeah. she couldn't even give a straight answer. It's like it's not addressed to anybody. Yes. Did you write it? Well, I, I, I don't know. You've you've made your decision. You know what you're going to say. I'll just wait and see what you say. Do you want it back here? I mean, she was copying major attitude. It's like, girl. Yeah, Calm there's a down. weird, yeah, there's just like a weird kind of, I don't know if it's lack of self-awareness. I mean, even some of the behavior, you know, we see, you know, as we get into the case, it's just really behavior that no fully functioning person would, you know, exhibit. Yeah, I, I think it, and it is, it's a lack of self And she's also, she is uh, really concerned with what people think of her. So she doesn't want people to think negatively about her. Yeah, and, and I wonder if that goes all the way back, you know, again, with her, the relationship with her parents and, you know, that kind of sibling rivalry where she's always feel like she's, you know, competing or yeah. being judged. Yeah, because Tracy was the more popular, accomplished. I mean, Carolyn was not, you know, was not a standout socially, was not a standout academically, but Tracy was. Yes. And even though I think Virginia Madsen played her in one of the TV movies, you know, she was not unattractive, but she was not, you know, not, you know, drop dead gorgeous that, you know, would make men stop in their tracks and, you know, give her attention. 
Right. She had right. to, it seems like she had to work really, really hard for the attention. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the, one of the other things in her history is that she had had a prior protective order taken out by the wife of her college boyfriend, Paul Levin. He was apparently a teaching assistant. She started dating him. And then he ended the relationship. But one of the things that we see, and I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about it now. One of the things that I've seen, one of the things I've recognized in Jody Arias, Carolyn Wormus, and some other uh, obsessive relationship people, and it includes men, um, they don't hear what is being said to them. They hear what they want to hear. So when a boyfriend says, I don't want to see you anymore, Jody Arias and Carolyn say, I'm saying I don't want to see you, but I really do. You just have to fight hard. No, that's a great point. Or you have to call me more or you have to write to me. And, you know, they're they're hearing a lot of times they're hearing something that is not in any way, shape or form being expressed. Yeah, exactly. Um, no matter how politely and direct somebody is, they uh, hear something completely different. You can be impolite and rude and they don't hear it. it it's it's crazy. Um, I had a, 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 I worked at an insurance agency and the, one of the insurance agents was always, you know, kind of propositioning me and asking about my private life and coming up and giving me, you know, massages and things like that. And at first I was polite, but he didn't get it. And then I got rude. I like told him I wouldn't touch you with somebody else's hand. Um, you know, go talk to your wife, go see your wife. What does your wife say? What's your wife doing? I mean, I tried to be as mean and rude and obnoxious to him so that he wouldn't like me, but he was too stupid to get it. And you were just playing finally, hard to get. Yeah, he, he does. He thought I was playing hard to get. And it was funny because my manager had talked to the owners and said, she's verbally mauled him, but if he pushes his luck, she's going to physically maul him. <laughs> you have got to do something. And it came down. I got in an elevator. He got in with me. We were going down to the first floor. He said, I could stop this elevator and rip your clothes off and do whatever I wanted to you. And you wouldn't be able to stop me. And I looked him right in the eye. I said, I will kick you so hard. You will choke on your balls. It's amazing. I mean, try me. Yeah. I'm always amazed that people behave that way. You hear those stories and you believe them, but it's still hard for me in my mind to wrap my head uh -huh. around that a person actually behaves that way. I mean, it's yeah. bad enough in general, but particularly in a professional setting. Yeah. And, and, you know, for him, that was it. That was the, that was the, the line in the sand that he didn't want to cross. Because when the elevator doors opened, he waddled out because I think he shit his pants. <laughs> he waddled out and he never spoke to me again. And he was there another four or five months before he quit. But he never said another word to me. And I, I you know, I say if he had called, if he thought I was bluffing, 
he would have been sorely uh we'd have been very surprised because had he laid a finger on me i would have whipped his ass and he'd be talking really high for the rest of his life yes he would be <laughs> if he survived the choking <laughs> um but and and i know a lot of women you know they i my mom raised me to be tough and not to be prey and to know a man is not stronger if you put your mind to it because you're smarter and so poke him in the eyes kick him in the balls he's down for the count it's the best um, advice best <laughs> advice you can give a young lady and well and i think we do we we have to like you know the woman i remember we talked about the uh the guy i think it was from the parks and recreation i'm sorry the indian actor oh yes and um, the girl said oh he put his fingers or put my fingers in his mouth or put his fingers in my mouth i'm like okay the first time you take the fingers out the mouth say don't do that again the second time you bite the fingers and you bite hard if you can dislodge the finger joints the tips will come off if you've got good teeth <laughs> and lesson learned for sure that'll <laughs> and, be the last and they time will you be, you know, that trick that kind of thing touch me and you'll be drawing back a stump uh, and i warned you once i told you not to do that again so you you know you were warned um so uh yeah, Carolyn's one of those people. I mean, Paul Levin breaks up with her and she begins stalking him and following him. And uh, she writes notes and letters and knows he's in a new relationship with someone else. And so she starts harassing that person. And that's when, you know, the protective order comes in. And, you know, once again, you saw her explanation. Well, everything was fine. And then the next thing I know, He's wanting a protective order and he's married somebody else. Carolyn. <laughs> yeah, there's some dots in her brain. Just she has Dude, trouble they do not connecting. Connect. Yep. They do not connect. She has she sees her, she sees reality in a way that she paints it, I think, completely dislodged from actual reality. Yes, most definitely. Or at 100%. best a shade of gray of actual reality. <laughs> so um yeah it, it's no it's not even a mirror image it's probably her reality is like uh willy wonka <laughs> and the chocolate factory everything is you know everything is the way that she wants it um her prior crimes include uncharged ones but uh when she worked at a restaurant in michigan she was um engaged in a credit card fraud scheme and this is back in the day when they would put the credit card on a little machine and put a piece of a paper slip with carbons in it and then they would swipe it across the card to make the imprint of the name and the card number and all that and the customer would get a copy and the merchant would have a copy um, she would run multiple cards multiple times and keep those slips. And then when people paid cash, 
she would write in the amount on the slips, turn those in, and she'd keep the cash. And, you know, this just speaks to her, just her mental state, because as we talked about, it wasn't like she was needing money. You know, she wasn't doing this because she was trying to survive. She was doing it because she just has this sort of psychosis that she just, for whatever reason, engages in this type of strange behavior. I think it was doing something and getting away with it. Or maybe it was, and maybe it was a way of getting money to share with her coworkers in order to impress them. Oh, that's interesting. Or that to, would make sense. To, you know, have, actually, and she may have been, she was working in a restaurant in college, so maybe she didn't have as much uh, cash flow at that time. So, uh, and then there was a, a forgery in the, it was also in the 1980s in New York after she'd moved. She was involved in some kind of car accident. And she told the other party that she wasn't driving the car at the time of the accident, that she was escorting a school trip in Washington, D.C., and she produced a letter to prove that she was escorting a trip to Washington, D.C. to get out of responsibility for this car accident. Um, and that's one you kind of like, well, why would, why would she even do that? Maybe she just didn't want her rates to go up. And I don't know that she could ever tell anybody why she did it either. Cause like you said, she has no self-awareness. Yeah. And that's, she would, I mean, that she would probably say, I never did that. I never did that. That never happened. It never happened. Well, and that's what's so odd. You know, these, again, they're just these things that she does, the way that she behaves, it just doesn't seem like there's a rational explanation. I mean, you know, cause there are some people who will do bad things, but you can mm-hmm. at least sort of understand why they did it. It's, it's still wrong, but you can at least say, well, I can at least understand why this person would behave that way. But for her, it just doesn't make any sense why she would engage in this kind of crazy behavior other than just her whatever's upstairs the synopses are not completely mm-hmm. firing yeah so all right so let's get to the uh the the background on the case of course again the the victim was betty jean solomon uh the date of the murder was january 15 1989 uh in the fall of 1987 paul solomon began an affair with warmus who just started a job at as a substitute teacher at Edgemont School in Greenberg, New York. Now, Warmus claims that Solomon was supposed to be her mentor at the school. However, I have found no corroboration of that claim from any source other than Carolyn Warmus. And because Carolyn Warmus is Carolyn Warmus, I tend to doubt that there was actually a mentor-mentee official 
mentor-mentee. I think what happened was Paul Solomon was teaching in the classroom across from hers. And so she began relying on him to uh, figure out the politics at the school and how to take care of whatever, you know, things she needed to do with her classrooms, with her lesson plans. Uh, probably it was her first teaching job out of, out of college. You know, how do I do a lesson plan? Uh, you know, where do I get supplies? How do I, how, do I buy them? Do I submit receipts? You know, how does this work? Um, navigating her first job as a teacher. Um, and I think Paul Solomon, not realizing that he was looking at crazy, um, thought, oh, nice young woman. And she's interested. And I think, I think that if the, personally, I think she, probably advanced made advances on him older man father figure right she's all over that now what are your do you think there's anything i think there are some maybe thoughts that maybe this was not the first time he had engaged in some friendly relationships with a colleague do you think there's anything to that it more likely than not wasn't because you know paul Solomon and Betty Jean Solomon's marriage was another can of worms. And both of them were not exactly faithful during the course of their marriage. I mean, some, you know, some Carolyn Warma said that he told her they, they had an open marriage and maybe they did. And that was, they were married in the seventies, late sixties, you know, maybe that, maybe that was, uh, an open relationship, but they made the commitment for, you know, monetary reasons, having a family, having children. They, you know, maybe neither one of them was willing to live in sin. And they wanted to be together, but not all the time. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. It wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. No. And that yeah, a lot of marriages during that era were kind of, you know, well, kind of like some of the relationships and marriages of today are kind of fucked up. Yeah, we just had the um, Will Smith incident from the news, which is, I think, put his marriage in a little bit of the spotlight. It's, well, his- it's my understanding they have an open an open marriage as well, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, and well, I think that that's caused an issue with him before. And I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, in reality, I don't think he wants an open marriage. I think she's the one who wants the open marriage. And I have got to say in Chris Rock's defense, I don't believe that he was making fun of her alopecia. No, I don't think so either. Medical condition. I mean, you know, there are other ways he could have, if that was where he was going, there are other ways he could have done it. Uh, I think people inferred because she has a medical condition that that's what he was making fun of. But I don't think that he was ever making fun of her medical condition. 
no, I agree. I, I think that's probably right. I, I think she had, you know, a, a, a bald head and a green army green dress. And so he thought GI Jane. Exactly. You know, and you know, I, I, if you're so sensitive, I think somebody said this, if you're so sensitive about it, wear a wig. Well, that's what I thought the same thing. It's, you know, as but terrible if, as alopecia is, it's not like there's not a lot of, you know, alternatives out there, you know, you know she, unless you're intentionally sporting yeah. that look. I mean, she's, she's been, and she's been going around with the, even before the alopecia, she kept her hair very, very short. That's right. And so, you know, she's always kind of been, and she's never been, or never seemed to have been, uh, uneasy about her looks. No, in fact, the opposite. She's probably ex- one of the extremely confident. Mm-hmm. So um, now she was not happy about the comment. Uh, but you know what? She should have gone up on stage and dealt with Chris Rock then. Yeah, well, you, you have to realize, too, if you're going to be in, you know, if you're going to be in the public sphere and you're going to make your money from the paying public you need a little bit of thick skin Mm -hmm. yeah she's not a private citizen yeah and i like i said i think will smith uh i think he's got a lot going on and that has led him to a couple of erratic things um and i this might be the one that does him in because uh, initially people were supportive and now it's the tide has turned. No, that's yeah, it's it's bad when I think it was the seeing him laugh at it at first and and then suddenly decide to go up there and uh, make a scene. Yeah. Um, Like Jada was perfectly capable of going up there and smacking the shit out of Chris Rock. And I think it would have been different if she'd done it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but I I also think that she would have been one to go up to him after the show and say, what was that? You hurt my feelings. And he would have said, I'm so sorry. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's a time and place. Yeah, at Um, that point, it became more about Will Smith and Jada. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right. Well, back to back to Carolyn. Crazy Carolyn. Um, um, this is one of the other things that's really, you know, odd is they, they began Paul and, and Carolyn began this affair, but she became a friend of the Solomon family, spending time with them, with Betty Jean, with their daughter, Kristen, she'd have dinner at their house or their condo. She would go watch Kristen's basketball games. They let her take Kristen on a ski trip. Um, so, uh, but warmest became obsessed with the relationship with paul solomon yeah and this is the behavior where it just becomes obvious something is just not right i mean Mm -hmm. the the i mean i i'm trouble even finding words to describe this looney tune behavior where she just shows up at the family home Mm -hmm. at yeah christmas birthday party with expensive gifts uh, and this is at a time when she and Solomon were on a breakup. 
and you notice she's like, he pursued me in well, yeah, her this, statements. Yeah, and this tracks back to that behavior again, back when she was little, where she again is trying, you know, probably from her dad and her parents trying to basically thinking she can buy somehow the love of Kristen and that's going to make it all great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she told a friend that with her money, um, and I don't, I don't remember what Solomon's with her money and whatever Solomon had, I don't freaking know what, uh, but she picked him. Um, she, Solomon, Chris would make the perfect family yeah, or so his career. Like maybe. Is, yeah. Like she's just living in a fantasy world. Yeah. And he had, I, and I think he was honest with her from the beginning of the affair that he was not going to leave Betty Jean until Kristen graduated high school and went to college. That if his marriage to Betty Jean ended, it would not be until then. And, and, uh, Kristen was only 15 at this time. So they had three more years before he would be free. Um, which I think Carolyn decided to accelerate. <laughs> On the afternoon of January 15, 1989, uh, Solomon was at home with Betty Jean when he received a call from Warmus, And he made plans to meet her at a Yonkers restaurant that evening. Now, that's his first mistake. Uh, instead of saying, look, I'm spending, the, uh, I'm spending Sunday with my wife. Leave me alone. Click. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll meet you at the restaurant. And I think, I think they were off and on, off and on. And this is one of the times when they were kind of off and she's trying to win him, woo him back. Yeah, and she must have, I can't imagine, she must have, there must have been something more to that, some sort of probably yeah. manipulation threat, something, because I thought the same thing. It, it seems really odd that there's, you know, there's kind of the spontaneous, you know, meeting at a restaurant. Something must have happened where she said either, you know, come or I'm going to do something. I'm going to tell your wife or I'm going to, well, you know, something. No, I think it's more that she had just decided she was going to eliminate Betty Jean. Kristen was off on a ski trip, so she needed to get Paul Solomon out of the condo. Um, but don't, he, don't you think it's odd that he would be so responsive? I think that's where I'm, I guess I'm, like you said, I'm surprised that he just said, oh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll go see you he, right now. Well, it's really he was, strange. I think he had a Sunday night bowling thing going on. So he was going to be in Yonkers anyway. Uh, that, that's right. Yeah, because he does go to the bowling alley first. And he's a man who's probably not thinking with the brain between his ears. That is fair. He's thinking with another part of his anatomy that isn't very smart. So um, he, uh, so he agrees to meet her. After the call with Solomon, Warmus's phone bill shows a call to a New, Jer New Jersey gun shop. And that afternoon, someone using the driver's license of Lisa Katai purchased 25 caliber ammunition uh, at that gun shop. That evening, Solomon left to go bowling with colleagues in Yonkers at the Brunswick Lanes. 
uh, at around 7.12 p.m., an operator uh, answering 911 calls, because they didn't have a 911 system in uh, Scarsdale area, Westchester County at the time. Um, she answered a 911 call from a screaming woman whose only decipherable words were trying to kill me. Uh, in her shock, perhaps, when she wrote down the phone number of the caller, she transposed two of the numbers. And so when police were dispatched, they ended up in the wrong place. They may have ended up in the condo complex, but not the right unit. And they didn't find anything. Um. At the time that call was received, Solomon was counted for in and at the Brunswick Lanes and Yonkers. He left shortly after that and went to Treetrops, the Holiday Inn Hotel restaurant where he'd agreed to meet Warmus. Warmus arrived at around 7.50 p.m. and claimed that she'd been held up in traffic on Sunday night, even from Manhattan to Westchester County. I don't think so. So, uh, you know, number one, if you're keeping score on your scorecard, write no alibi. Because the time of the murder was around 7.12 a.m., 7.12 p.m. Uh, the two had dinner at the restaurant and then, um, I guess, hung out in the restaurant for a little while. And then they ended up in Wormus's car for a sexual encounter of some shape, of some way, shape or form. Um, whether it was oral or all the way, I don't know. It's just uh, really sad. You know, you're like, you're at the treetops at the Holiday Inn, at least surely spring for a hotel room. It's just, there's just a real kind of sadness for that. I, don't, I mean, not, I know it's weird in the context of the murder, but there's something just really pathetic about getting it on in the parking lot of a hotel. It's, you know, but, we're not talking about the Waldorf Astoria, I, you I know, it's a this, Holiday Inn. I, I think this is one of the aspects that I infer that Solomon wasn't trying to sleep with her. You know, maybe he was just trying to be friends. Maybe he thought if he continued to be friendly with her, she would be okay. And well, well and that's kind of what I was thinking earlier. And then you know. she's always throwing herself. I mean, it's like Jody Arias. You know, Travis Alexander tried to tell her, get out of my life, stay out of my life. And she kept throwing her hoo-ha at him. Yeah, and that was my question earlier about, you know, what would make him want to go meet her? And maybe that's what he was thinking is maybe he could just keep her sort of, maybe they could stay friendly. Maybe he could keep, you know, the crazy somewhat in the box so she doesn't do anything rash. And that's what his thought was, maybe just being nice to her would help placate her for a little bit. Correct. Correct. Well, and if I can ask you, Lisa, what are your thoughts, you know, as I think about this on the timeline, you know, because is it reasonable? I am not super familiar with the area, 
you know, I've visited, I certainly, I've not been to Yonkers. I haven't gone, you know, much North of Harlem, but is, you know, committing the crime and say, you know, let's just assume she's done, you know, if the call was at seven twelve, let's say, you know, it doesn't take long. Mm-hmm. The murder's probably done by, you know, what, seven fifteen, maybe it, you know, this, she's probably in the midst of the attack at seven twelve. you know, yeah. for the listeners to the podcast, is that very reasonable for her to get there around seven fifty? Yeah. I think the, the, the trip Yonkers to Westchester County, I think is maybe 20, 30 minutes, especially on a Sunday night. Right. Um, and um, Manhattan to Yonkers is probably another 20, 30 minutes. Um, because she was driving from Manhattan to Westchester County to teach. Right. So pretty Every reasonable. Day. And she's going to know the area and know how to. Yeah. And, and Westchester, I mean, probably on, on weekdays, it's probably hour, hour and a half. Um, I can, I can go. Uh, yeah. Cause it looks here just from Greenberg, the Yonkers, it looks, yeah, you're exactly right about, you know, right about 20 minutes, probably in a car. Yeah. Especially like I said, on a Sunday night. Yeah, exactly. On a Sunday night. Yeah, that's right. This is still looking at, you know, potential rush hour on a monday mm-hmm. evening so but yeah i i think she arrived uh i think she probably was waiting in the hotel in the condo parking lot and as soon as solomon left carolyn was on her way up to the condo and then she probably maybe she tried to talk to to uh, and again i'm speculating 100% Maybe she tried to talk to Betty Jean saying, look, he's cheating on you. Dump his ass. Divorce him. And Betty Jean's like, I'm not divorcing him. And in her, you know, and and that would throw Carolyn into a rage. It's like, okay, I tried the easy way. Now we're going to do it the hard way. And she pulls the 25 caliber gun from her with a silencer from her pocket and nine times she shoots Betty Jean. Um, the two parted company about around 1130 PM and Solomon went back to Greenberg warmest return to her apartment in Manhattan. When Solomon walked into his condo that he shared with Betty Jean, he found her on the floor bleeding from multiple gunshot wounds. His call to 911 was logged at 1142 PM. Initially, Paul Solomon was the prime suspect because when a wife dies, the prime suspect is always her husband. And for the next six to seven months, uh, Solomon was questioned multiple times and police uh, investigated seeking evidence that would lead to probable cause for an arrest. They never developed that. Uh, During that time, because she was part of Solomon's alibi, she was only considered a witness warmest was lisa can i ask you one more question about the Mm -hmm. timeline does it seem does that 11 42 seem a little strange you know if they left around 10 30 and i could i could be wrong on the time of when they left when they parted company that was that was my speculation and it's not in any of the documents it's kind of like 
I read a lot of articles and I read a bunch of things and I watched a bunch of things. And that number, that time came into my head when I was writing out the things and I should have not, I should have not included it. God, um, that makes sense. Cause no, but that's not documented, right? There's no right, way they just, it, they finished up doing whatever yeah, they were doing in the car. Yeah. And then one of the problems, New York does not have a lot of information in their direct appeals, especially not in hers. So um, that was my speculation and it's probably wrong. Well, and if it's uh, something too, that she's saying she might've, she might've, you know, arguably made the time earlier so that it might seem suspicious. Correct. And that, that could be, I, I, I couldn't tell you right now where I even got the time. Um, so uh, at the time of the funeral or shortly after Solomon told uh, Warmus that their relationship was older, over. Uh, in spite of Paul's desire to move on, however, between January 1989 and July 1989, Warmus left multiple notes and letters in Solomon's school mailbox. Now, this is interesting because she addresses this in the uh, oxygen special. She initially says, well, he never told me to stop. And when she said he never told me to stop, I wanted to say, bitch, please, if he told you to stop, you wouldn't have heard him. You would have kept on writing. But then it's interesting. She says at the funeral, she says, well, I want to write to you and tell you how I'm doing. How do you want me to write to you? Now, like I had a pen pal when I was a kid. I didn't ask her, how do you want me to write to you? I wrote her letters. And I put her home address on them and I put them in the mail and I mailed them. Now, she's not at the Edgemont school anymore. So she's writing him these letters and going to the Edgemont school to leave these letters in his school mailbox. She's not sending them to him in his, in his condo. She's not putting them in the condo mailbox. She's going to his school and leaving them in his school mailbox. Um, this is just, this is obsessive stalking behavior. And as I said, she says, he never told me to stop. I'll bet you he did, but you didn't listen. Right. You didn't respect. And it's, and that's the thing with obsessive relationships. They don't respect the wants and needs and desires of their romantic interest. Right. When there's something kind of, I think, clinical too, of putting it in the school mailbox, like she, she, there's some reason there she's, you know, even though it's not, I guess, technically public per se, it's definitely more public than if she just mailed it to his house. You know, somebody is seeing her at the school, somebody's seeing the notes, you know, or she thinks that police are monitoring his mail that he's receiving at home. So she's trying to slip it past the police by putting it in the school mailbox. And there's something there, too, I think, with him, you know, breaking it off right after the murder, because it's at least from my perspective, it makes me think he definitely probably thought she might have had something to do with it directly or indirectly. I, I would I would expect that that probably is true. And this would have this would have probably unhinged her to a degree because she's gone to all this trouble. 
to get Betty Jean out of the picture to have him. And now he's casting her aside. Right. And in her mind, she did it for him. She yeah. didn't do it for her. She did it for yeah. him because that's what he wanted. It was she was putting herself at risk for him. The you know, probably for her, the ultimate act of love. Right. So um, Warmus claims that in June or July of 1989, Solomon appeared at her apartment in Manhattan and rekindled their relationship during a sexual encounter. Solomon denied ever having sex with her at that point. He claimed that he went to talk to her because he wanted to know if she was involved in Betty Jean's death and that they talked and that was it. He may have kissed her, but that was it. Um, in August of 89, while visiting her family in Michigan, Warmus claims that she received an answering machine message from Solomon inviting her to join him in Puerto Rico. She changes her ticket. She gets on a plane. She goes to Puerto Rico. She goes to his hotel. She calls his room. She leaves messages for him. He and his girlfriend, because he's there with a new girlfriend named Barbara, cut their trip short and go back to New York and report the incident to police. Because Paul Solomon did not invite Crazy Carolyn to Puerto Rico. He was there with another woman. He was not interested in Carolyn being in Puerto Rico with him. Um, so after that trip, Warmus apparently became the respondent in a second request for an order of protection, which was granted to Barbara, Solomon's new girlfriend. When investigators are looking at Solomon at Warmus's phone records, this is when the treasure trove of information comes to them. Uh, they find in her phone records repeated calls going back sometime with a PI by the name of Vincent Parco, who had been hired by Warmus to tail the New Jersey bartender uh, that Warmus was dating and ruin his marriage. Uh, and of course she claims, well, no, that wasn't it. I just wanted to know if he was really married. I wasn't dating another married man. Well, no, that's not. <laughs> um, I think for her too, unattainable is even sexier. For sure, absolutely. Um, so, and Parco in his initial interviews was very evasive, but his evasiveness set off the hinky detectors for the for the detectives and they knew there was something he was not that he was hiding and so they kept at him and they kept at him finally he eventually admitted to illegally selling warmest a 25 caliber pistol with a silencer that was made by a friend of his in brooklyn i believe it could have been brooklyn it could have been the bronx don't know for sure uh, that he sold to her for $2,500 shortly before the, for, before the murder. Um, the police then went to the guy who made the silencer, and in finding where the silencer was made, they found test rounds that had been fired, and that led them to shell casings that were consistent with the shell casings that they found at the crime scene. So uh, this is an important point. While they never physically recovered the actual gun used in the murder, they had a person who put that gun in Carolyn Warmus's hands. 
and they had shell casings from that gun that were consistent with shell casings at the murder scene. When it's like we say, uh, we say in a lot of these cases, I'm sorry, Lisa. uh, That's almost as good as having the gun with Carolyn Warmus's DNA on it. Right. Well, we say in a lot of these cases, either the convicted are guilty or they're the most unlucky people in the world where all of these quote unquote coincidences, you know, you know, perfectly line up, you know, the odds Mm -hmm. of that happening, you know, just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting, too, because in the um, in the theory that Parco uh, was framing her, well, he had no connection to Paul Solomon and he had no connection to Betty Jean Solomon. Yeah. What's his motive? His only connection is to Carolyn Warmus. So unless she hired him to do the deed which she ain't going to say she did um, there, you know, there's no, there's no, um, there's no smoke with that fire. Exactly. You know? Um, And again, her phone records led to the gun shop in New Jersey. Uh, That led to the purchase of ammunition that led to Lisa Katai. And that led to the fact that her driver's license disappeared while she was working with guess who Carolyn Warmus. Yeah, another one of those amazing coincidences. Yeah, and if she did hire, you know, Parco yeah. to do it, there's no reason for her to need to go buy the ammunition right. or a gun. That, right. You know, you would think it would all be, you know, if you're a hitman, you probably have your own gun and your own ammo. You don't need to, you know, have your client provide that for you. Correct. And, um, you know, it's it's a strong circumstance. It is circumstantial. But it is a very strong circumstance because you have a witness that puts a gun in her hand. Right. And you have shell casings that, that are consistent with shell casings at the crime scene. Well, uh, and a lot and of it, people. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. A lot of people. Yeah. Well, so a lot of people think that, oh, if it's circumstantial evidence, that means it's not good. But, you know, circumstantial evidence is, you know, convicts a lot of people, especially when you have multiple pieces of circumstantial evidence all pointing towards the same story. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In addition to leading detectives to incriminating circumstantial evidence related to Betty Jean's murder, the phone records also showed that Warmus's trip to Puerto Rico came after phone calls to Barbara's roommate who testified that a person using the name Madeline sought uh, Barbara's whereabouts in a call shortly before Carolyn's trip to Puerto Rico. Uh, Barbara's mother also testified to receiving a phone call from a female Greenberg detective informing her that her daughter was dating a murder suspect. So not only is she trying to track down Paul Solomon and she knows he's dating Barbara, but she's also trying to get his relationship, interfere with his relationship with Barbara by going to mom and saying, He's dating. She's dating a murderer. You need to get your daughter away from her, away from him. Um, and then another investigator shed light on Warmus's plan to doctor photographs to be sent to the New Jersey bartender's wife to sabotage his marriage. And I think that investigator also said that Warmus had told him she was needed a gun because she was being threatened by a woman named Jean or Betty Jean. 
Now, um, while there were missteps on the night of Betty Sheen's murder, including the failure of police to collect a black woolen glove pictured near the body and officers allowing Solomon to wash his hands before GSR testing could be performed, investigators were able to build a strong circumstantial case against Warmus. While the weapon was never found, investigators were able to place a weapon consistent with Betty Jean's wounds in Warmus's hands and locate shell casings consistent with those found at the crime scene. You know, it's still amazing, not that murdering somebody isn't just absolute proof of insanity, but you would think even a you know, a somewhat functioning rational person at this point would say, I've probably gotten away with murder. Let me just go away, leave Paul Solomon alone and find a new boyfriend, you know, because odds are, mm-hmm. right, if she just leaves him alone and kind of goes away, yeah, she might have gotten away with it. But she's, con- you know, her obsession continues even after the murder. Yeah. It just shows you how irrational she is. Not that the murder doesn't, but, you know, even even rational people, I guess, commit murder, mm-hmm. you know, as horrible it is, yeah. at least there's a rational reason. It just shows you how unhinged she is that she's continuing this, you know, pursuit of women, which is ultimately going to get her convicted. And we don't see it as much in this case, but in in Jody Arias' case, uh, one of the commentators on HLN was like a... a a human lie detector who could read people and tell mm-hmm. when they were lying. And she had something, she said, Jody Arias displayed this duper's delight look when she thought she was getting over on you, she would get this look on her face. And I think warmest had that as well. I think she thought she was getting away with it. She thought she was going to get away with it. And I think she thought that she was going to buy her way out. If, worst comes to worst and she gets caught yeah well she had her whole life so why would it stop now so um she was arrested sometime in february of 1990 she was actually indicted and then arrested um and she was free pending trial on two hundred fifty thousand dollars bond i believe now on february 2nd 1990 she was charged with are indicted and charged with secondary murder and second degree criminal possession of a weapon. And, you know, what we have to remember, I'm in Louisiana, you're in in Texas, but in New York, very, very, very strict about guns. Yes. And so uh, that's why she had to have a driver's license to purchase ammunition, even in New Jersey. Because New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, some of the most restrictive gun laws in the United States. Um, The case was uh, in County Court of New York in Westchester County. The judge was John Carey. Um, Carolyn has said some some unkind things about him, but um, her opinion is worth nothing. James McCarty represented the people of state of New York and David Lewis represented Warmus, at least in her first trial. Um, now, there is something good that I found. Um, some of the early pretrial motions are reported. Um, there was a 
1990, June 1990, there was a motion to suppress bank records, MCI phone records, and credit records from Citicorp and American Express because the police were investigating, uh, probably trying to um, trace the funds paid to Parco while she while he was working for Carolyn Warmus. Uh, of course, they had the phone records and credit card records from American Express and Citicorp. I think they were probably also, again, trying to use those to figure out what she paid Parco and when right. to try and identify the $2,500 he says she paid for the, for the gun and silencer. Right, that makes sense. And now this is was really weird to me. Um, several subpoenas Ducas Tecum, which are, are for documents and things, were issued. Um, apparently, the bank records were subpoenaed by the detective. And the uh, records were to be returned to the police department rather than the court. Um, in normal practice, um, the subpoena is issued by the court. In Louisiana, this is how we do it. The attorney signs it and issues it, and the documents are returnable to the attorney at his address. Um, if there's an appearance for trial or deposition or hearing, um, that's a subpoena for a personal appearance. But in New York, apparently in criminal cases, subpoenas are issued by the district attorney and everything's returnable to the court. And then I guess the court sees that the defense and, and state get whatever was returned. Um, so the a subpoena issued by the detective to the bank, which was in Michigan, meaning you can't subpoena documents from an out-of-state entity, um, that was improperly issued. The records returned to the PD was improper. There was a subpoena issued by the district attorney to MCI, and that was proper, and the records were properly returned to the court. There were some records sent to the DA that were never opened or utilized, and those were ended up those ended up being suppressed. But most of the records that came to the court were ones that were able to be used in the case. And then the City Corporate American Express records, no decision was made on those. Um, Warmus was given a chance to come back and prove that those were obtained and were unduly prejudicial or in a procedure that was unduly prejudicial. Um, so the order was the bank records were suppressed, the MCI records were not suppressed, and the decision on whether to suppress Citicorp and American Express was uh, reserved and not ultimately made. And again, the suppression order was really just because, I mean, not to, for lack of a better word, it was almost like paper or clerical errors, meaning wrong people. Yeah, it was. There was a print sent to the wrong place. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think the police were trying to do anything nefarious. Right. Um, I, I, and this is, there was a hearing, but the court didn't really detail the testimony. Apparently one 
uh, ADA was hung out to dry. So there may have been irregularities uh, as a matter of practice in the office at that time. But the uh, district attorney did not cho chose not to address those. Uh, we've had a scandal in, in New Orleans where uh, Leon Canazero was issuing basically fake subpoenas to, to witnesses and victims to compel their appearance, uh, to compel them to come in for interviews and things like that. Um, you know, sometimes DAs get desperate and try to do something that they really should not have done. Mm. Um, but, uh, and that may have been what this situation was because I mean, I think they were like, the bank is in Michigan. What do we do? Well, send them a subpoena. And if they send us the records, we're good, but we can't push the records. We can't make them give us the records if they don't want to. Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays, a lot of like entities like phone companies, they take fax subpoenas. You go get the subpoena issued by the court, you fax it to them and they send you the phone records. They don't, you don't have to serve the subpoena or anything. You just get it issued and send it to them and they have it for their files. So um, banking is a little different. They probably have to get served with an actual subpoena. Um, and if they're not in the same state, you have to go through the process of getting it issued in the state that they're in. So, and so, so my apologies for being ignorant. No, that's okay. Is, is this an, so this is something kind of new to me. So really it is like for bank records and other types of things, it is, it is more difficult to, it, you have to go through the state jurisdiction to get a subpoena. If, like if a bank or something is out of state, that's Correct. just and sort of normal. Okay. Well, it's interesting. New, new news for me, new, uh, new something for me to learn today. Yeah. Federal, um, federal and state law govern getting bank records in civil and criminal matters. And you have to dot the I's and cross the T's and follow the letter of the law. Um, in order to be able to get and sometimes I've seen cases where we did everything that we're supposed to do to the letter and the bank said nope still not good enough not giving it to you and so you know you just have to and then we have to get the you know you have to come you have to file a motion to compel the bank to appear and explain why they won't give you the records. And every time it's happened, the bank comes in and says, well, we thought this and the judge says, well, not under whatever law. And the bank's like, oh, okay. And they usually bring the records to the hearing and say, okay, here you go. We're sorry. We made a mistake, but <laughs> They have to consider if they release a customer's records wrongfully, they're on the hook. The customer right. sues them. And even if they don't necessarily release them wrongfully, you know, they have to make it, they have to make a paper trail 
of everything that had to be done before they did release the records because the customer could still come after them and then they're going to have to prove that they didn't do anything wrong. So that makes it, a lot of sense. It, yeah, it, it, it's not fun. Banking law is not fun ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. So we're at the first trial uh, in Westchester County. The trial began on January 14, 1991, and went on to closings, which were April 16, 1991. Now, in the first trial, the jury heard about the missing glove, the failure to perform GSR, uh, that Paul Solomon was granted and, and Vinnie Parker were both granted immunity prior to their grand jury testimony. That is normal because they were being compelled to appear before the grand jury. Therefore, um, they were given immunity because they didn't have a choice in testifying. And the, so they're being given immunity that they're not going to be incriminating themselves with their grand jury testimony. And you got to remember, Parco illegally sold a weapon and a silencer. Mm -hmm. Because it's illegal, it's illegal to manufacture silencers. Right. So uh, he had committed a crime. Um, and I think what happened with Solomon, he did retain an attorney. And for that bitch, Carolyn Warmus, to make it sound like retaining attorney is a, is a sign of guilt, I wanted to go through the TV and smack the bitch. Because you retained an attorney. Yeah, that, well, that's, it's just, yeah, that's insane. Um, you know, the minute you know, your little ass was arrested, you retained right. an attorney. Does that mean you're guilty? Um, so, but he did. And, and the attorney wasn't going to let him talk to the grand jury without immunity. And so, yeah, he got immunity. Uh, he also had a movie deal that was arranged by the attorney. Um, he, uh, the jury heard from a witness who claimed to have overheard an alleged conversation about disposal of a gun in the deepest part of the river between Vinny and Paul uh, within an hour of the murder at a Yonkers bowling alley and the exchange of $20,000. So implying that Paul hired Vinny to kill Betty Jean. Um, and, and there's no independent connection between those two, right? I mean, no. that's her, the private and, investigator that Carolyn's retained. Correct. There's no connection between. And there was no connection Paul between Paul and, and Vinny. Parco, Parco or Betty Jean and Parco. Um, and interestingly enough, this guy had a weird story about how he was driving from White Plains, which is in Westchester County to Yonkers, and he got lost, and he ended up in the Brunswick Bowling Alley. Um, and the within an hour of the murder, was it an hour before? Was it an hour later? You know, if it was an hour later, Paul was probably getting his knob polished by Carolyn Warman. <laughs> or he was at least eating dinner with her. 
Well, I would assume too that, you know, Vinny's a PI, he's a pretty sophisticated guy running in probably these types of situation. I, it just doesn't seem realistic. He's going to have that conversation. He he wouldn't be conduct. Yeah. He wouldn't be conducting that business in a bowling alley restaurant. Exactly. And like I said, as I recall, the common sense test, it was a bowling alley restaurant. And the guy, if you, if you looked, it was, it was played during the first trial. He looked like a freaking extra reject from the Sopranos. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he was like, uh, okay. So yeah, that one. And I, 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 I don't think, um, I don't, I would be surprised if the jury really found him to be credible at all. Uh, and then there was testimony from Mormons's father regarding an attempt by Parco to shake him down to get Carolyn out of trouble. Um, and finally, there was an MCI phone bill of Carolyn's that was admitted into evidence that did not show the call to the New Jersey gun shop. It instead showed a call to Carolyn's mother in Traverse City, Michigan. The jury began deliberations on February, uh, April 17th, 1991, and a mistrial was declared on April 20. I have April 21st, but I don't think that's the date. I think it was the 27th of April. Uh, the mistrial was declared. The jurors were deadlocked eight to four to convict Warmus. So maybe four jurors did believe him. Our four jurors just found reasonable doubt from the missing glove and the lack of GSR and the fact that Solomon and Parco were granted immunity. Um, after that trial ended in mistrial, on December 4th, 1991, Carolyn was indicted for forgery and tampering with evidence from the forged MCI bill. Uh, and do you remember her, her, her statement about that on the special? I don't remember specifically what she said, other than it seemed consistent with just her delusion. She she says this was a bill that the my attorneys found in my filing cabinet. And she implied that because she was a teacher, doctoring a phone bill was something beyond her skill set. <laughs> Well, I don't think they taught you how to use a gun. And and, crazy, crazy can, crazy can do amazing things when they put their little minds to it. (laughs) And I'm sure I could see her with the little razor thing and stripping a phone bill with the call to Traverse City and gluing it on Mm -hmm. and then taking it to the local copy shop. And copying it over and over again to make it look real, you know, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, and she ended up pleading guilty. Now, this is another thing too. She's like, "I'm innocent of murder, and I'm innocent of the weapons charge, and I'm going to fight that tooth and fucking nail." But this tampering forgery charge, even though it impacts my credibility in a big way, I'm going to just plead all plead guilty and be done with it. Because fighting two cases is too much. Right. 
Well, yeah, it's, it goes back to the thing with, you know, innocent people don't behave this way. You know, yeah. if she was innocent, the call wouldn't have been made. And if it was, she'd have, you know, she wouldn't have yeah. the need to, you know, to hide it, which it is interesting because it does show there still is some ration. There is some rational and reasonable thoughts going on in her head. She did think to forge the phone bill. So she does have some awareness right you know, the, of the evidence against her. But I, I think it's it's a it's a it's a not thinking through. And you know, Jody Arias, Carolyn Warmus, a lot like Richard Glossop, they're the dog ate my homework kind of people. They give an explanation and they don't really think about whether it makes a fucking bit of sense. Well, yeah. And I guess to contradict myself, yeah, to your point, it never dawned on her that, that, you know, the police would have access to those records that, you know, it wasn't something easily disproven. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of her, a lot of her stick in the, um, in, in the special was none of this ever happened. Right. So maybe none she's not that, as reasonable no, as I give her credit for. Call, none of the phone calls happened. None of these conversations had, I never wanted to, I never wanted Vinnie Parker to take naked pictures of me and send them to somebody else's wife. You know, it's like, yeah. And when she was cornered with something damaging, she copped an attitude. The first thing was the suicide note. Which wasn't just a suicide note. It was like, I'm going to kill myself. Don't autopsy me. Uh, I want, uh, I want all my things to go to Paul Solomon and his daughter Kristen. It's just so strange. It's like, but you know, instead of saying, you know, yeah, the, I mean, if somebody came up with some crazy, stupid bullshit I wrote when I was 23, mooning over a man which I did, uh, I would be like, oh yeah, that was like one of the worst times in my life. And, you know, yeah, that's how I felt. I felt horrible and I hated myself and I hated him. And, you know, this is what came out of me. But once I got it out on paper, I was good to move on. Exactly. But, you know, instead with Carolyn, it's like, I don't know. It's not, it's not addressed to anybody like that makes a bit of fucking difference as to whether you wrote it or not yeah well that's the funny thing about this it's like it's almost like they feel like if they admit to anything at all that's the mm -hmm. least bit unusual that makes them guilty when it's actually the opposite like you said a rational person could say yes i did do that it didn't it made sense to me at the time looking back now it you know it, maybe it I would have done dumb. something different, yeah. but yeah, I just, I did something silly. I did something dumb, but yeah. yeah, it's the, it's the constant trying to cover up and have an answer for everything that at some point it just becomes silly or copying an attitude and being evasive. Exactly. If you have and, nothing to hide, you don't need to hide it. Yeah. And that, that is, and she has something to hide instead of explaining it. She copped an attitude and was evasive and failed to explain it, leaving us to figure out you're just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, aren't you, Carolyn? Exactly. <laughs> so um, second trial was held in, it began in January of 1992 for the life of me. I can't find an exact date. 
Um, Carolyn was no longer represented by David Lewis because apparently getting a mistrial was not good enough. Or poor David Lewis could not take Carolyn anymore. Maybe David Lewis felt a bit tainted by that forged phone bill because he did put that into evidence. Right. That's got to be. Yeah, that's not um, something you want to be associated or with. Or maybe Carolyn was threatening to say it was all his idea. That makes probably the most sense. <laughs> so um, there's no there's no details on what happened with but he had enough sense to run and run he either ran or dropped dead or you know (laughs) fired her ass i don't know uh but she was represented by william i Aaronwald. he was uh he was actually quite well known in new york and um he was a little bit different david lewis was described as a bear in a suit and, you know, I mean, he was a kind of heavy set, big guy, beard, dark hair. Um, Aaron Wald was an older gentleman, silver hair. Uh, Carolyn probably had a crush on him. Daddy issues, notwithstanding. And um, another interesting thing I want to I want to mention at her first trial, when her dad testified, he stepped off the stand. He walked right by the table, didn't even acknowledge his daughter. That's a cold man right there. That is. Yeah, that's you actually can have that's where you can have a little sympathy for her just as realizing that that's probably, you know, that's what she grew up with. That was, you know, her mm-hmm. experience with parents where you can. That's where I can have a little bit of uh, sympathy creeping in. Yeah, um, that's it's why she screwed up, but that's what therapy's for. Exactly. It's not an excuse at all, no. <laughs> and she, she was a psychology major, it, you know, in college. So she should have known she had issues. And she should have been talking to people about those issues. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. So, uh, I'm sorry, that just tickled. I just tickled myself with that. <laughs> <laughs> so at the new trial, uh, prior, just prior to the second trial, Paul Solomon found in a box in a closet of the condo a black woolen glove. Uh, it was a woman's glove. So Facebook, social media posts and uh, internet pages that say it was a man's glove. You can tell it was a man's glove from the picture. Wrong. It was a woman's glove. Um, there was apparently a tag and everything in it. So they knew uh, where it was from and who manufactured, etc. Um, and it was examined and found to be consistent with fibers found in Betty Jean's hand or hands. And it was linked to warmest through a receipt, a credit card receipt from Filene's basement for the purchase of the same brand of glove on November 9, 1987, and testimony from Kristen Solomon regarding Warmus wearing a pair of similar black woolen gloves on their ski trip. So now you asked me before we went on the air uh, about this glove and chain of custody. And um, that 
issues like that, it being found after so long and not having been collected by the police, all those things would go to the weight of that evidence for a jury to decide whether they wanted to believe the glove was legitimate or not. Uh, and in fact, it's up to the jury to decide whether or not it's legitimate or not. Uh, but as far as chain of custody, it was in a box in the condo for that period of time until it was discovered by Paul Solomon. Certainly, Carolyn was, was able to interview people, and if they thought that somebody tampered with the glove, they were certainly welcome to put on that evidence. But there's no right. evidence of that having happened. Now, there are some descriptions by Carolyn's advocates of blood on the fingertips of the glove or blood stains or something. However, none of the official documentation that I've ever found mentioned anything about gloves, about blood on those gloves. And nothing about blood on the gloves was ever mentioned at trial. Yeah, and this is one of those examples that, again, we see in a lot of these cases is there's a there's a difference between what a convicted person might claim because that's free, right? You can mm -hmm. the convicted person or the supporters, they can claim anything and it's free. There's no cost to do that. Correct. It's different when you want to go enter that into evidence or you want to say that under oath or you want to you know, do a court filing, you know, where you're actually, you know, you're putting some weight behind the accusation or the allegation, if you will. Correct. And um, again, you know, the, the circumstances of it not being collected at the time of the murder, um, you know, that goes to the weight, not its admissibility. A lot of people throw around admissibility at, and, and they're, 99% of the time, totally wrong. Um, but it's weight of the evidence that's determined by the jury. And those factors go toward whether or not you want to believe that it's a legitimate piece of evidence linking Carolyn Warmus or whether it's not worthy of your belief and you can dismiss it. Exactly. Um, and well, those that's are, an important factor. Yeah. And those are the decisions juries make just as they decide what witnesses they believe and what witnesses they don't believe. So, uh, and again, the trial evidence, other than the glove, a new piece of evidence coming in, um, they uh, still, yeah. Oh, you want to go ahead? Well, I was going to, is there, you know, and I did not bump into this um, looking, you know, doing sort of online research. It certainly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Does she have maybe the large sort of rabid, crazy following of supporters like some of these cases? And maybe where I'm going is, is there is there some mass conspiracy where Paul and the police conspired to secretly plant this glove? You know, I, I think about the um, I, oh, I'm having a senior moment. I think there's another case where there's, you know, a, a potential planted glove. Oh, I'm thinking about the sock and the Darley Routier case. There's there's some other yeah. magical planted evidence where there's a conspiracy between everybody else but the convicted. Yeah. Is there anything like that in this case? Not really. No. But in the world, according to Carolyn Mormus, 
every witness who testified against her at trial is lying. She's the only one telling She's the truth. She's the only one that's telling the truth, right? And either they're lying or they're talking about things that just didn't happen. Right. And she's or, the unluckiest person in the world because yeah, all this all they, this circumstantial evidence magically aligns against her. Correct. And you know, again, at the at the second trial, they still had Parco's testimony that he sold the gun and silencer to Warmus for twenty five hundred dollars. They had ballistics testimony regarding the caliber of the weapon used, and the shell casing found at the scene and the location of the silencer manufacturer. The gun shop on her phone bill. The purchase of ammunition with a driver's license stolen from a former co-worker. Um, her admission to a nurse about getting a gun for protection. And testimony regarding her statements about threats by Jean or Betty Jean. And her obsession with Solomon following him to Puerto Rico. Um, and all those things. Uh, the jury deliberated. And on on may 27 1992 they found her guilty of second degree murder and guilty of second degree criminal possession of a weapon and she's actually kind of lucky that it wasn't first degree murder because a lot of stuff shows really shows premeditation and planning that would have elevated this to first degree yeah and you i kind of don't understand why westchester didn't go with first degree that was the question on the tip of my tongue is how in the world is this not first degree murder when it was so clearly premeditated? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, unless maybe, uh, maybe because I guess maybe they thought the testimony was strong, but might not be strong enough for first degree. To get over that hump for a that jury. makes sense right they're thinking you know as we we hear about in a lot of these public cases you know that have gotten into the news the last few years that have gotten our nation in an uproar you know i've heard at least anecdotally they talk about there's a tendency of politicians and prosecutors for publicity stunts to overcharge people which sometimes backfires because mm -hmm. People, you know, juries have a hard time with, you know, these overcharges. And it was probably the opposite here, especially, you know, this is back in what, you know, the very early 90s, still probably a little bit of, you know, female defendants, sympathetic, you know, got, you know, treated right. terribly by Paul. Maybe there was some thought of strategically, you know, much higher probability to get a second degree conviction, even though it does feel like if she did murder her, which, you know, clearly she did it it had to yeah. be premeditated it wasn't yeah. a it wasn't an accident now i do have to give carolyn some props uh aside from being a drama queen coming in and out of court and screaming when people got too close and she turned in the courtroom i guess and looked at the gallery one day and a photographer snapped a picture so she started wailing and putting her head on the desk and crying and screaming um, Carolyn did not elect to go for the plain librarian makeover prior to her trial. At least not the first trial. Right. I think she toned herself down a little on the second trial, but the first trial, she dressed like a freaking model every day. I know. 
And I think that's how she saw herself. I think I think she she could. I think I I heard an anecdote. I think it was maybe when she was taking those pictures of herself that I think at least heard. And I don't know if this is true, but she basically threw herself maybe at the photographer or one of the PIs that was helping uh, Parco, and he basically mm-hmm. said, "Oh, that's okay." And she just couldn't she couldn't process that a man would not be interested yeah. in her. Um, now, and she admits on her, in her interviews, she was promiscuous. And I think all that's part of the looking for love from men and looking right. for acceptance from men. Um, and she's like, well, that's why I didn't testify. Cause they would have used my sexual history. Girl, it was the 1980s. You would have had women on the jury that were alive, you know, in, in high school and college during the seventies. Right. That wouldn't have, they wouldn't have blinked the eye at that. (laughs) Exactly. Come on. No, it's just that I think what I really, I think her attorneys could not put her on the stand because there would be the dog ate my homework explanations for things. And then there would be the attitude yeah, well, that she's does so not play well for a jury. She probably would have made up some new. Yeah, she would have made yeah. up some new excuse that wouldn't have matched yeah. the overall narrative that would have gotten her in trouble. Um. So yeah, that that was. Uh, so her sentence. She was sentenced on June 26, 1992, 25 years to life on the second degree murder and five to 15 on the criminal possession of a weapon. So then her post-conviction is all topsy-freaking-turvy because apparently she owned one-third of a family corporation. And when she wanted free trial transcripts from the state of New York, they said, no, you got to pay because you own this corporation. But the corporation allegedly didn't have any value. It wasn't liquid. It wasn't something that she could easily uh, turn into cash. And so she ended up filing a federal habeas corpus writ to address the issues. Um, That was filed in the Southern District of New York in uh, December 28, 1995. Um, the judge in the, the U.S. District Court judge, I believe, I don't have an opinion, but I believe that he found that she had to exhaust that asset. And after that, she was entitled to free transcripts. She, uh, but he denied her relief. Again, I don't have the opinion. So I don't know exactly what the reasoning, how that worked out. It was appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeal. And the district court, uh, the Court of Appeals found that the district court erred in finding that her interest in the corporation was liquid. But it ordered her to transfer her interest to the New York courts. And then after she exhausted that asset, she was entitled to freeze transcripts for her direct appeal. Um, And so the issue was decided. The case went back to the district court 
which denied and closed the case in November of 1999. Then we go to direct appeal and Warmus was represented yet again by different attorneys, uh, Barry Fallick, Jillian Harrington, and Trisha Lafosh. And the state was represented by Diane Sulker, Richard Weil, and Stephen Bender. Um, Warmus also filed a pro se brief. So she basically didn't think her attorneys did good enough. And so she had to chime in. Um, her attorneys challenged sufficiency of the evidence and improper admission of the glove. In her pro se brief, she raised numerous claims, including improper admission of her trip to Puerto Rico, improper exclusion of her polygraph test. And if you go to carolynwarmus.com or carolynwarmus.org, you could see the questions asked on the polygraph test. I don't think this was a police-issued polygraph. I think this was something that she got outside attorneys to arrange. And of course, the person who took it said she's telling the truth. Because the questions were really odd and and not what would be asked on a police test. And I think she was only asked four questions and then they said she's telling the truth. Whereas usually polygraph is there's a pre-test interview, a test, a post-test interview. And then, you know, they use all those pieces in order to make a determination as to whether or not there was deception or no deception or can't tell right well, um, yeah, and, and most of the i think what most most folks now kind of have a pretty you know m- you know polygraph tests yeah. can be informative but they're certainly not definitive and and they're never ever 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 admissible because they're subjective exactly and you can have one po- you can have two polygraph examiners look at the exact same thing and each come up with a different interpretation right well and you know if she's shown with just her overall mental state it wouldn't shock me at all if she could pass a polygraph even if even a legitimate one because i feel like in her mind she is you know has quite a bit of a disconnect from reality i mean i i probably shared with you i had a da tell me one time that it's not uncommon for for people that are suspects and definitively committed a crime, they can convince themselves so thoroughly that they are innocent. It's like a psychological defense that they can mm-hmm. look you in the eyes and proclaim their innocence. And in part of their mind or their conscious mind, they actually believe it. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think that's a lot of, and sociopaths can do that exactly you know they can they can pass polygraphs without a problem because they don't have a conscience and it's like it's your conscience that makes you feel bad when you're lying exactly so but uh she also complained that trial publicity deprived her of a fair trial apparently because the publicity was not in her favor (laughs) it was bad and um the her family attorney um 
warmest family attorney, her father's attorney on that special, the picture with the peach suit and the short skirt. Yeah. He's like, they illegally use that picture. It's like, what did you get hit on the head too many times in your <laughs> life? Oh man. Um, she's in a, on a public street, getting out of a vehicle. They took a picture. Nothing illegal about that. They can do whatever they want with it. Exactly. You know, they didn't peer through her bedroom window and take a picture of her and publish it. You know, and then her story. Well, I thought I was going to get on the left side and I didn't. So I had to slide across. So it's not her fault. It's somebody else's fault, the driver or the attorney, you know, and when do you ever get out on the left side when you're a passenger in a vehicle? Exactly. It's crazy. That's, that's actually a great synopsis of the entire, her entire mental state for everything. And it gets, <laughs> like we said, it's like, she's gonna, she's got a crazy, she's just got a crazy dog ate my homework for everything. If she would have just said, okay, you know what, looking back on it. Yeah. It was the early nineties bad fashion choice that was silly probably mm -hmm. if i had to do it over again i would have worn a different outfit but you know what i made the mistake you know yeah. sometimes just acknowledging your own you know yeah. acknowledging that you did something wrong actually gives you some credibility versus yeah. everything is always somebody else's fault so and and it was a reporter's fault and the media's fault and the photographer's fault you know that's why she didn't get a fair trial right it wasn't fair, but they weren't in the courtroom. You know, yeah. and you, you got to presume the jury did what it was supposed to do. So the jury's not seeing this stuff because they're not supposed to be seeing it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And without you know. proof that they did or it biased them, you do have to sort of assume, you know, positive intent and that the jury, you know, without proof that there was jury misconduct, you just have to yeah. assume that they weren't impacted by the publicity. And another another allegation she made or a claim that she raised was that the jury improperly reached a verdict before readbacks of testimony. And this is a this is a dog ate my homework kind of claim. She's decided in her little brain that the jury reached a verdict, but then asked for readbacks of testimony just because they thought it would look good to have testimony read back. And how would she know when they reached a verdict? She exactly. wasn't in the jury room. <laughs> um that her statement was improperly admitted and the jury was improperly allowed to use a transcript while listening to the statement. Um, this is kind of another common one where um, people will decide that if that you can't have a transcript and listen to a recording at the same time it's just not allowed and that's not true if the transcript is by a certified reporter who's authorized to make transcripts for court proceedings then it's perfectly fine for this jury to have a, re a you know written copy of a transcript 
while they listen. Especially when you're talking about 90s technology that was not, or 1989 technology, that was probably not as clear as a bell as what we would have now. You know, this is digital. Exactly. This is before digital, right. where if you recorded over a, a cassette tape a certain number of times, you would end up with cassette tapes that would slow down and then speed up and then slow down again. <laughs> so it could be problematic because I had attorneys that would dictate on little cassettes until they broke. Yeah, and only and then of, would they say, okay, right. I'll throw that away now. Exactly. Well, in a lot of these things, they're just, you know, throwing throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall to see if something will stick. Yeah. And then she, you know, she had a, a bunch of claims. Um, she said the people were improperly allowed to withdraw. They had apparently filed a motion to dismiss the criminal possession of the weapon. And they were allowed to withdraw that by the court. Um Honey, the court decides whether they can do that or not. And the court apparently decided that they could. So screw you. Um, <laughs> her conviction was based on inference on inference and is improper. Um, basically, in Carolyn Warmus's mind, if they don't have an eyewitness that says, I saw Carolyn Warmus shoot Betty Jean Solomon, then they can't prove she killed Betty Jean Solomon. It doesn't matter how all the circumstances build built upon each other. Um, those are circumstances. That means it's inference. That means it's not good. Um, they didn't have her fingerprints in the apartment. You know, that's the only way they didn't have any direct evidence. She's not guilty. Um, that her uh, defense's mistrial motions were improperly denied. I'm not really sure what the mistrial motions were about. Because the, the appellate opinion doesn't really detail them. Uh, that Parco's phone records showing a call to a phone number in Plainfield, New Jersey, were improperly excluded. Uh, the gun shop was located in Plainfield, New Jersey. Apparently, in Carolyn's mind, if Vinny Parco called Plainfield, New Jersey, he had to be calling the gun shop. <laughs> so... <laughs> And it's too bad for her that they didn't find the gun shop until like six months later, or there would have been video that proved her innocent, by the way. Did you hear her say that? Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it's remarkable. And uh, the defense was impermissibly prejudiced by exclusion of extrinsic evidence about Parco. They wanted to admit bankruptcy records and records about uh, his business and finances and um they weren't relevant so they weren't admissible and then there were some unspecified additional connections that weren't detailed so um i'm sure the list was a lot longer because that kind of personality um that's what you're going to get it's going to get minutiae absolute right um so the decision was rendered by the appellate court on uh, July 18, 2006. And that's pretty crazy. Her convictions in 1992, and it took until wow. 2006. That is unbelievable. For her direct appeal. Part of the delay was the four years over the free transcript issue. Um, and just for, for those of us not in this world, 
what's the bill on, you know, like, what would you just a guesstimation? I mean, what is the bill on this transcript? Are you talking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, you know? I have gotten at one point, I think I reached out to a court reporter on another case and it was a, it was only a four or five day trial. The transcript was like six or $700 a volume because it's a lot of work for them to transcribe. Right. Um, and this, I think, was a, a case that was not appealed. Now, for researchers like me, sometimes you can go to the appellate record and get the copies for a per page limit, for a per page price. But no, I, I checked, and this was a case where I don't think it was appealed because I think it was a guilty, for, a, a guilty plea. And there were several hearings and things like that. And I was wanting to get the records and it was like $700 a volume. And sorry, what's a volume? Uh, for one day of testimony. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. More or less. Gotcha. Um, and I know in, in our, uh, in civil realm, um, I've gotten, you know, hearing transcripts that are 300. And then we had to order the record for a, an appeal that was 1400 And that's like one hearing and several, you know, several pleadings. So it depends on what your what is involved. So it's not cheap, but it's not mm -hmm. $50,000. No, I would say probably uh, well, her trials were very long. And there were multiple pretrial proceedings as well. So I would say probably um, it would have exhausted every bit of that $9,000 value on right. that corporation. But I don't know that, it, I don't know how much more, you know, maybe another couple thousand. I was just trying that. to think why she would want to, you know, waste four years in prison fighting over. You know, I mean, especially coming from somebody who ostensibly, you know, her father well, had means. I'm, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because by the time she went to prison, her dad was having financial difficulties, uh, so to speak. So the tap was probably turned off for little Carolyn. Got it. And daddy wasn't going to be footing the bill no more. Right. Carolyn may be one of the prop one of the reasons he was having financial difficulties, uh, as well as basically wanting to live the high life and have all the toys, and perhaps not devoting as much time to being a good businessman as he perhaps ought to have done. So that is why we were fighting over free transcripts. Right, and we never really got into this at the time. But did she ever, you know, because in a lot of these cases, right, the alibi is the easiest way. And that kind of what got Paul off the hook. Did she ever attempt to provide an alibi or does she maintain anything today? Well, around the, an alibi? the only real thing is that she has filed uh, 440 motions, which are New York State's 
statute governing post-conviction. Um, she has claimed that Betty Jean's time of death was placed in the afternoon initially. And then, you know, miraculously changed by a corrupt medical examiner to fit Paul Solomon's story mm. or something along those lines. I think that was mentioned in that CNN interview. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. But I found nothing in any of the official documentation that I found. Admittedly, there's not a lot um, that placed Betty Jean's time of death at any time before that 911 call at 7.12 p.m. So methinks that the alleged afternoon time of death is just propaganda. Designed to make it seem like Carolyn Warmus has a colorable claim of actual innocence. Right. To throw, yeah, just to kind of throw more doubt there. Um, you know, like I said, if she if she could produce an autopsy report that puts time of death in the afternoon. Um, but I mean, Paul Solomon didn't leave until five thirty, six o'clock. Sunday evening. So she would have been alive until the evening. And as we know from like Rodney Reed, um, medical examiners don't rely on just the physical factors that they find at autopsy. If they have extrinsic information like a 911 call at 7, 12 p.m. from a woman screaming somebody's trying to kill her or the fact that a husband left at six o'clock in the evening, then, you know, they're going to use that to try and narrow the window. So, right. Yeah. If the autopsy, the autopsy has a time of death at a time when clearly you were alive, they're going to, they're going to put it in the context of everything. It only makes yeah. total sense. So, um, the decision of the appellate court, of course, uh, Warmus's conviction and sentences were affirmed. Um, the court ruled that although objections to the sufficiency of the evidence were not preserved, they had reviewed independently uh, the evidence against Warmus and found it was sufficient to support the verdict. They found the glove was properly admitted. And again, as we, as we discussed, uh, the providence of that glove being found by Paul Solomon 18 months or two years later, that's goes toward its weight. It doesn't go toward its admissibility. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, issues A through D were not preserved on the, on the pro se claims had not been preserved for review and were found to be without merit issues E through J were found to be entirely without merit. And issue K could not be reviewed. Um, these were matters that were outside the record. And so the appellate court couldn't review them anyway. And I don't know what they were because the appellate court after J was sick and tired of Carolyn's crap. And they decided they weren't going to even list those other things <laughs> that she was complaining about. So um, she didn't file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court a surprise um 
so her conviction and sentence became final when the mandate issued probably in August of 2006. Now, she also filed a legal malpractice claim against an attorney by the name of Julia Height. That was filed in the Supreme Court of New York, New York uh, County. And it was seeking return of attorney's fees paid to Height to pursue Warmus's direct appeal. Um, Warmus was seeking appointment of counsel to pursue that legal malpractice claim. And she was also requesting that documents in the legal malpractice claim be sealed. Um, and the court found, this is a trial court decision. Um, the court found she had no right to appoint a counsel on a legal malpractice claim. That her request to seal documents related to her underlying criminal case were granted because those documents could have had strategy or um, theories or, or thoughts as far as defenses, ap appellate issues, et cetera, that um, should be protected. Her request to seal documents unrelated to the underlying criminal case, including uh, some of the documents that were submitted to the fee dispute arm of the Bar Association were denied. And the court set a preliminary conference on October 2nd, 2006 at 2.15 p.m. Now, as of November 2016, the case was still going on because it was some kind of appearance for argument in the case. I don't know the, whether it was a pellet argument or a trial court argument, but apparently the issue is still was still going on in 2016. I don't know. I never found anything uh, detailing any type of resolution of that issue. Um, Carolyn has filed claims alleging sexual assault by COs at Bedford Hill. She's in Bedford Hill, Hills with uh, Pam Smart, the other teacher killer. <laughs> who Seems fitting. Had uh, her teenage lover and two friends kill her husband. Um, and uh, Kellen Wilmes filed a civil claim in federal court in October of 2004. Uh, that was in the U.S. District Court, Southern District of New York. Ultimately, she was awarded in January of 2010 $10,000 to go into her prison commissary account. And her attorneys were awarded $69,531.53 in attorney's fees. <laughs> so and there was strange. a full release of any and all claims for incidents between the date of her incarceration and February 14, 2007. Now, apparently this incident in the late 90s or early 2000s, a law was passed in New York that basically said people in prison can't consent to sexual relations with corrections personnel mm. or Got prison it. personnel. Right. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that because I think that it gives people a, a 
golden opportunity to fuck up somebody's life by enticing them and then crying rape. Right. Um, and you know, I don't know. And, and I think with, I think with Carolyn Warmus, I think this was a, a, an existing relationship that she used to her benefit. And then when it benefited her to cry sexual assault, she did. Yeah. It seems like kind of the same, seems like the same sort of, you know, theory kind of behind statutory rape, right? Like if you're, you know, if you're a minor, you cannot consent, even if you quote unquote consent, you know, even if you practically are an active and willing participant, you legally cannot consent. Right. And that like, to me, like I said, I I just think, and I think it caused issues where, you know, women were having a relationship with a guard or a CO in order to get privileges and, you know, things that other prisoners couldn't get. Uh, and it benefited them. Um, you know, and, and I know some COs abuse, I, I know sure. some COs abuse their power, but, um, but then COs out there, you know, if you're listening, just say no. Yeah, exactly. Probably always the always the right decision That's just to say no and don't, don't get no. yourself in that. But the, yeah, so just to clarify, even though she won without getting too much into the details of the count, this doesn't necessarily mean that she was. And again, I'll have to be careful. I don't want to upset anybody, but she was maybe not against her will sexually assaulted like we might, you know, commonly think when you hear the term sexual and- assault. And with Carolyn's history and Carolyn's psychopathy, I would say, you know, she wanted those COs to like her. And she probably liked sex because she says herself she was very promiscuous. Right. So, um, and being locked in with women, you know, she might have wanted to drive, continue driving stick. (laughs) um but uh and this did this has caused problems for her because she was perceived by other prisoners as setting up a popular staff member and getting him fired and the other prisoners were not happy so it has caused her problems she's been in protective custody almost her entire time in prison Um, and probably because her little attitude doesn't win her any, any friends either. Absolutely. So, uh, her state post-conviction claims, uh, don't know a lot about what kind of claims she raised. Interestingly, she was represented by the same attorney. She, she was suing for malpractice at one point and, um, on, April 22nd, 2008, her claim was denied saying that she failed to establish ineffective assistance of counsel. She's filed other uh, 440 motions claiming new evidence. One, 
that Paul Solomon had insurance on Betty Jean and thus made money when she died. Uh, but the jury already knew about the money he was making from the movie. So, um, and, and that's something they could have discovered before trial. It's not new just because you just heard, you just heard about right. it. Right. Well, yeah. and I mean, having, I mean, having life insurance on a spouse isn't unusual and certainly doesn't necessarily, you know, point to guilt. It's, it's the one thing when, you know, when you have the spouse that doesn't work and you have the, the $20 million mm-hmm. life insurance, it's a little bit suspicious, but yeah, yeah having a normal, uh, having a standard life insurance policy on a spouse. Uh, and, I, and more likely than not, they just didn't look very hard for that information. Uh, because you have to show you could not have 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 used this or or allege this in an earlier motion. Right, exactly. And um, uh, and then there was uh, allegations about time of death, alleged new evidence. She was filing 440 motions. This was, I think, around 2010 or so, uh, maybe even later. And um, they were more likely than not denied because she didn't get a new trial. Um, but I don't know exactly when she filed those motions or, or when the outcomes or what the outcomes were or the precise uh, in um, allegations that she made. And then she had a pretty extensive dis- disciplinary history. However, in 2015, she challenged a disciplinary that had already been reversed in an administrative process in the prison. So her court challenge was deemed moot, even though the court did say, you're right, Carolyn, they didn't have enough proof. And then in 2017, she appealed another disciplinary um, and the court found her guilt was not supported by substantial evidence and the determination of guilt was annulled by the court. It was basically they found blank key lock Smith requests in a locker. But since nobody said she put them in the locker, they couldn't really put those blank locksmith requests in her hands the way Vinnie Parco put a gun in her hands mm-hmm. with a silencer. Um, in December of 1994, Thomas Warmus sought personal bankruptcy protection and American Way Services Corporation also sought bankruptcy protection. In between 1999 and 2002, there were several cases filed in which the trustee was seeking return of property and or funds from post-bankruptcy transfers of property by Warmus. Uh, He was apparently transferring personal and corporate property through shell corporations, friends, business associates, and um, disposing of these assets outside the bankruptcy estate. And that was not his job to do. That was for the bankruptcy trustee so that the bankruptcy trustee could pay his creditors. But he wanted the money. Right. He's trying to. And so he was trying to you know, do this under the table. Um, these actions resulted in criminal charges against Warmus. Uh, for which he apparently pled guilty and served a prison term. 
there was an article in like 2007 that he was still in prison. Uh, I don't know what happened with that. That's another thing that I couldn't find anything, whether he's out of prison or not. Um, and then again, as I mentioned earlier, she alleged sexual abuse by COs and that led to some animosity against her by fellow prisoners who think she was setting staff up um, in a parole interview in January, 2017, she blamed the media for her conviction, claimed a wrongful conviction, cited her medical issues and that she'd been targeted by other prisoners who accused her of being out set up staff. Uh, her parole was denied in 2017 they cited one of the things they cited was poor compliance with DOCC rules. And then parole was denied in 2018. It was finally granted on June 17, 2019. As we saw in the uh, oxygen special, she's wanting to prove her innocence now. And she has been granted DNA testing. Um, of limited evidence that was granted in may of 2021 but there's radio silence so far as to whether the testing has happened what the results have been uh, the items to be tested are a glove stains in a tote bag that was was uh pictured near betty jean's body on my notes i have solomon's gym bag but it was a tote bag um and I don't know that it's Paul Solomon's or not. And then semen from Betty Jean's autopsy. Although Solomon says he and Betty Jean had sex that day. So um, if it's Paul Solomon's, that don't mean he killed her. Right. And well, with um, any of that stuff, right? I mean, the glove, the tote bag. I mean, all of that stuff was in their home. He obviously moved it, you know. Right. Well, there's a, there are stains on the bag. And they're, they want to test, they claim there was blood on the glove, but again, that's their claim, but I've never found anything that said there was blood on the gloves. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Um, or on the glove. It was a single glove. And um, one of the things I want to address too is um, Carolyn Warmus did attempt to get DNA testing at different times prior to being paroled. And one of the reasons different states, most state laws in the early 2000s were pretty restrictive. Basically, if it wasn't used against you, you couldn't test it with DNA now. Uh, that were, those were the early versions. And in a lot of states, you have to prove that the results of the testing would absolutely change not might change not could have changed that they absolutely would have changed the outcome of your trial and i don't think that in the early her initial dna request testing request i don't think that she could meet the statute in new york and that's why testing was denied of course in warmus's brain it's denied because they know she's innocent but 
again, more likely than not, she couldn't meet her burden. And that's why it was denied. Um, the DA apparently agreed to this testing despite opposing prior requests. So they're going to test the glove. They're going to test stains from the tote bag. And they're going to test semen. And see what happens. And I'm curious, you know, what is your take? What, you know, other than just kind of living in this fantasy land is, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is her end game. You know, we, you know, I think I commented earlier, she seems to not just be able to leave well enough alone. You know, you think, just go away. You're out of prison. Just go away. But is it yeah. to maybe sue for relief for being wrongfully convicted? Is that kind of her end game? I think that's what she thinks is going to happen. Um, but it, she's going to have a long road to hoe because if the glove has Betty Jean's blood on it, that's not going to change the outcome. And they've linked the glove, the glove to her or DNA from Betty Jean, whether it's blood or, 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 uh, something you know whether it's blood or epithelial right dna um you know that's not going to change the outcome if betty jean's blood is in the tote bag again that's not going to change that would not have changed the outcome of the trial the glove would have made it even more damning for warmest. I think what she's hoping is unknown DNA on one or the other. Right. That's what I was thinking is it would almost have to be, yeah, everybody, you know, the Solomon's blood, her blood, you know, that could be explained, but yeah, it would have to be somebody else. And then yeah. if they did, so let's just say it does come back as, you know, an unknown third party what would she then hope that maybe they would reopen the case they would you know try to test um the pis is that what her thought is is they would just kind of start over and start reinvestigating i think that is what um what she's thinking but that's not really practical in from exactly. a practical aspect right that's not how it's going to work um, one of the problems to DNA testing, if they don't have, they would have to get reference samples from Marco exactly. and Solomon of. prior to DNA testing. If they can't get samples from them, then what are they going to pair the DNA they find to? Exactly. You can't say it's unknown if you can't compare it to any reference sample. Now, maybe she's saying, thinking they'll run it through CODIS, but if the, if, you know, they're not in CODIS, it's unknown. Um, I don't think she really, I think she has this fantasy that it's going to be unknown DNA. If the semen from Betty Jean's unknown, then I'm innocent. It proves I'm innocent. And that's not necessarily true. Because exactly. Betty Jean could have had somebody come over. Uh, but again, it's going to really hinge on whether they get reference samples from Paul Solomon and Vinnie Parco and Kristen Solomon. 
and they would have to compel that, right? That's probably not something they're going to necessarily want to volunteer. Mm. Yeah, and she's not really, she can't compel it. What they, more likely than not, what they'll do is if um, they'll, they'll go surreptitiously try to get DNA. You know, they'll follow Parco and if he smokes a cigarette and drops it on the ground, they'll go pick it up and try and use that to get DNA. Right. And um, that kind of at, at the beginning, what I mentioned a minute ago, right, that that basically means she's assuming they're going to reopen the I case think, and dedicate yeah, and resources. I, I, I think she states the state of New York is going to go to, you know, Parco, Solomon and and Kristen and say, give us your DNA. You have to. You don't have a choice. And I, I don't think that's how it works. Right. They could, and, I mean, Parco, Solomon, and Kristen can tell them all to go pound sand. Exactly. And what are your thoughts, you know, similarly, you know, what do you think is behind the DA's willingness to sort of, you know, remove the objection to the further testing? You think it's just sort of the the overall sort of public pressure behind all of these sort of requests where it's just, it's always kind of seen as in a negative light. If you're, you know, standing in the way of potentially proving someone's innocence, do you think that might be well, what's behind the removing the re objection? Westchester has apparently um, created a conviction integrity unit. Got it. Our conviction review unit. So um, it's along the lines, I think, of that. That makes sense. And so, um, it, 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 I think this, this I, I think more likely than not, the results are going to be inconclusive, at least as to guilt or innocence of Carolyn Warmus. Um, and I'd like to know, did she give a DNA sample? That's really, yeah, that's a great question. Because um, her, they got to look at her DNA, look at that glove. If her DNA is found on that glove and Betty Jean, or her DNA or Betty Jean's, game over. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just sort of assumed that she had, but to your point, yeah, there's no necessary guarantee that she, you know, she'd provide her own sample. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and the, the process is taking place outside the courts. And uh, really, in reality, I don't think even if the, even if the tests were, even if the results were exculpatory, as to her guilt or innocence, she's been paroled. She's not going to get a new trial. Exactly. And yeah. I, I don't know that they would vacate her conviction at this point. Right. Because it's like you said, it, it really doesn't point. It doesn't really point I can't imagine, like I said, maybe if it was, if it was Parco's, you know, maybe if it was somebody that was considered a suspect, it might potentially 
you know, definitively, it, well, maybe not definitively, but even point in another direction, but largely it's probably not going to provide any more clarity mm-hmm. than, you know, it already does. And I mean, even, you know, ironically back to her, sort of her questions about the, the chain of custody with the glove, you know, who knows where that glove was or had been. I mean, you might, who knows what kind of results you might get, even if it was in a box, you know, somebody put it there, Kristen might've put it there. Who knows, you know, right. DNA could be on that. Right. And um, another thing that they, she and her current attorneys who probably won't last very long with her. um, One of the things they, they cast, Uh, aspersions at paul solomon apparently when police released the condo paul solomon and Kristen moved back in and they said oh how could they live there he must be guilty because he could not you know if he weren't guilty how could he live there where his wife was murdered well maybe he didn't have any place to go i mean maybe he couldn't afford another condo 1989 i think that was one of the times when the economy kind of took a dive because oil was not doing as well as it used to right when i would actually i mean it's a little strange to me but i can understand it but i would actually think the opposite i would think if he was guilty it would be a lot harder to stay there yeah and well i think If the marriage with Betty Jean was as fraught as some people have said, it it may not have been. I don't know. No, he may not have been a a very sentimental person. Now, for Kristen, I don't know. But maybe maybe the Solomon family was a little off like the warmest were. Well, I was thinking the same thing. If they do sort of have this marriage of convenience, maybe he wasn't truly in, maybe they weren't in love with each other anymore. It mm-hmm. might not have had the emotional devastation and, as it, and, in some others might. Yeah. And it may have been, I mean, my, my dad, we had a family friend who walked away from her condo because she couldn't give it away. I I think it was a couple years after this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people sometimes have to do or bound by have to make a suboptimal decision because or maybe it seems suboptimal, but at the time it's the only possibility. It's the real practical thing they have to do because she, you know, she didn't like the complex and the the, you know, condo association was not doing what it was supposed to do and um she put it on the market and she couldn't sell it and it was on the market for a long time and finally she said screw it and she walked away and she rented an apartment and took her loss yeah you know? well that might be something that you know it's easy to look back you know 30 but years and think it's strange but doesn't now, certainly doesn't point to guilt Granted, he was going to make money from that movie, but he if he didn't have check in hand, then he maybe had to stay in the condo until he had that money. And then he could walk away from it. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, um, you know, whatever he made the decision he had to make. And 
I don't think, you know, Carolyn Wormus is the last person that ought to be, you know, playing Miss Judgy. Exactly. <laughs> because Judge Judy, she ain't. Um, so, all right. Well, that's, I think that's it. Um, so Carolyn is like Jody Arias 1.0. Yeah, it is a very... It's a very strange case and a very, very strange convicted killer who just continues to act in just really, really strange ways. It's kind of like I've said a couple of times, I I keep just wanting to tell her, just walk away and go away. Just be glad that you were paroled and just spend the rest of your life in peace. Just walk away. But maybe I guess she's trying to still get still seeking for ways to get attention, even in the most negative way. This type, her type of personality is it's the attention seeker. It's the drama. Exactly. She's got, she's got to have something to be dramatic about. So yeah, that that's her personality. She's not going to sit quietly. And again, she is inordinately concerned with how people perceive her. Right. And so she has to counter anything negative. Um, unfortunately, instead of, you know, a little bit of honesty and self-awareness, we've got, it didn't happen. Everything was fine. I didn't do it. And it's not addressed to anybody. So it didn't, it's not, it didn't, it didn't written. Because if if it were, it would have to be addressed to someone to be written. Or it can't be a suicide note because it's not addressed to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to wrap one's head around what goes on up there. Yeah. Just like, you know, as a teacher, I could never forge a phone bill. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you could, you just couldn't do it well. (laughs) yeah that's exactly what i was thinking she does all these crazy things but just never quite good enough just like you know even back to the stuff with the prison even she finds a way to make the rape allegation or the sexual assault allegations against the Uh ceos in a way that angers all of the other inmates she can't even do that very well and well and i think it's also the world according to carolyn so you know i i don't think that everybody hates her because she set up staff she wants everybody to hate her because then they notice her exactly then they know she exists it's just like you know paul pursued her paul was always pursuing her and paul didn't ask her to stop writing those letters so he must have enjoyed them you know that kind of that kind of thing um but carolyn if you're listening I bet you if Tracy had killed Betty Jean Solomon, she would have gotten away with it because she's better than you. (laughs) That is what they call an ender. Yeah. Get the sisters mad at each other. And Tracy is uh, stepmother and Thomas, the brother, were involved in the father's legal issues, but not Tracy. So I think Tracy got therapy and washed her hands of her clan and more power to her. Right. 
the smart so. decision on many levels. <laughs> so, all right. Well, that's it for tonight. Um, uh, as we said earlier, we're going to talk about Dorothy Stratton next week. And then the week after that, we're going to, we're going to be talking Richard Glossop. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Well, thanks again. Another great job and Thank you. have a great evening. You too. Talk to you later, Kyle. All right. Bye, Lisa. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for episode eight, The Murder of Dorothy Stratton. On August 15th, 1980, the bodies of Playboy Playmate of the Year Dorothy Stratton and her estranged husband, Paul Snyder, were found in the bedroom of the West Los Angeles house rented by Dorothy and Snyder prior to their separation. Dorothy met Snyder while working at a Dairy Queen in British Columbia, Canada. We'll talk about Dorothy's rise to stardom in magazines, TV, and movies, her affair with the late Peter Bogdanovich, and the senseless murder that cut her life short at the age of 20. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Thank you.